uh, tonight we are going to be looking at cultural Hegelianism versus Christian eschatology. Now, uh, those are two big words, eschatology and Hegelianism, but, um, you know, Josh is hopefully going to define them when he talks about them. But yeah, with all that being said, Josh is going to pray for us and, and get into the meat and potatoes of it. So you can go ahead and take it away, Josh. All right. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the relevance to our lives of, of studying the past, the story that you have written to help us understand the story that you are writing in the present and the one that you are bringing to pass in the future. And let that reality give us hope and courage to face down those who would lie about you, your nature and character, your word and your world. And we ask you to conquer your enemies, to shatter the kings of the earth, and to do so in the two ways that you do it, through salvation and judgment. Amen. All right. Here we go. So, let me start with a correction slash redaction from last week. I did put it in Bible study chat, but Thursday Bible study, it got pushed back. Uh, last week, I was giving examples of ways in which motivation and belief are connected. So you can come to believe a uh, a false thing. You believe something that is false is actually true out of a wrong motivation, or you could come to that, um, come to a true belief through a wrong motivation. At the time, I said that uh, it is not possible to be rightly motivated toward a wrong belief, or that if you have the right motivations while seeking the truth, then uh, wrong beliefs will not be the result of that uh or rather uh if you come to a wrong belief then your motivations were tainted in some way even if you thought you were right, rightly motivated uh, after giving it some thought for a while uh, i was wrong about that and gave an example uh if i were to believe x where x is a wrong belief my motivation to come to that conclusion was this i should believe whatever i find in the bible is true that's a right motivation when seeking to know something, seeking the truth. Um, then I've ended up at a wrong conclusion out of a very, very right and correct motivation. And there are a lot, what, what I realized, what hit me was there are lots of people that do this. Um, and I want to encourage that motivation for in, in everyone because the fact of the matter is everyone who is motivated by that motivation will come to wrong beliefs about the world because we can misinterpret the Bible or we can be taught it by someone who is misinterpreting it and we trust them or believe what they're saying or believe our own thoughts about it because we are desiring out of a right, correct, godly motivation to believe what God says in his word. So 
I was wrong about that. I wanted to uh, say that at the very beginning before we actually jump into the main thing for tonight, just so I can say it on audio, I guess, have it recorded for posterity's sake. Um, so that if someone's listening to these in order, they would hear the correction at the very beginning of the next thing. And so that you all can hear it if you were here last week. So um, if you, if some of that didn't make sense, go listen to last week's if you weren't there or if you forgot and you'll see what I'm talking about where I make a bit of a fool of myself saying what I said. So uh, there you go. I was wrong about that. Wanted to clear that up a bit there first. All right. Now, welcome everyone to the topical study. And we are in the midst of a apologetics class, so to speak. And we are through with establishing the positive Christian case, the Christian apologetic, the mode and manner of Christian apologetics, Christian defense, Christian evangelism, however you want to put the phrase, the word, uh, that is what we have done so far. And we have entered into analyzing and responding to contrary worldviews. And we've started with atheism. In the first week, we looked at evolutionary naturalism, which stems primarily in our day from Dar Darwinian thinking, Darwinian evolutionary theory. However, there are many strands and flavors of this. And we looked at some of those and provided a response and a critique of it. Then the week after that, we began to look at some other strains of atheism that have contemporary uh, children, so to speak, of their thinking, namely in the writings and thought of Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Sigmund Freud. So we looked at their thought, but did not provide a full response to them at the time because I wanted to take a night to focus on each of them and their contemporary children. Uh, and in, in our case today, we're actually looking at the children of Marx in what I was going to title this tonight, Cultural Marxism. However, as I began to study and began to take notes and, and write things out, I realized that it would be a disservice to history to credit Marx with the worldview that we are examining. He in no way, shape, or form invented it, and his version of it is a microcosm of the five-headed monster that it has become. So to give credit where credit is due, I instead titled it Cultural Hegelianism and then realized that yeah, I already sent the title to, to Justin, so it was a little bit late, that adding the modifier cultural is also a misnomer and that we should just call it Hegelianism. And there are reasons for that, and we're going to go into them, but uh we are looking at what is often called, you may have heard this phrase if you listen to different kinds of thinkers or political podcasts or things or the news, you may have heard the phrase cultural Marxism. 
maybe even from your pastor, maybe you brought it up in the pulpit at some point, um, or you've heard people talking about it, who knows. Um, but we're going to go a little deeper than most of the surface level critiques that I've seen within Christian circles. They don't go to Hegel. And Hegel really is the father of this way of thinking. And many people today do not even tie this way of thinking to Marx, let alone Hegel. So they're not self-aware cultural Marxists or cultural Hegelians or, or Hegelians at all. They're not self-aware about it. However, this mode of thought is so ingrained into secular culture, secular academia, that it is taught and passed down the same way that a religious idea would be, where uh, this happens in, in every single major revival of Christianity. The children and the grandchildren are often, but not always, full of nominal believers. They're believers in name only. They don't understand a lot of the things they say. Their religion is cultural and passed down to them by their parents rather than something that is convictional. In the same way, the grandchildren of the Hegelian thought movement are nominal Hegelians. It's not something that they understand the origins of, but they believe it because that's the air they breathe and the air that they breathed growing up and being educated. And importantly, it is if you went to any kind of secular university or secular school, uh, is likely the version of history that you were taught. Maybe not, but Increasingly so, it is what is being taught. So it's very important that we look at the origins of it because history helps ground us in seeing, hey, this stuff is not new, and it came from a source, and it came from a mere man. And mere men, no matter what towering ideas or intellects they may uh, possess, cannot stand in the light of God's truth in his word which is the foundation of our apologetic, is to stand upon the word of God, perform an internal critique of the opposing worldview, and to shed light on the darkness therein by providing a positive contrary to it from the Christian perspective. So that's some background, hopefully some uh, coverage for those of you who have not been here uh, or who are new, because I think I saw some new names in the chat. So there you go. I'm not reading Bible study chat at the moment. I've got my dual notes up. I learned my lesson uh, that I can't read my own handwriting. So I've got my handwritten notes and my uh, shorter typed notes uh, in front of me. So I won't be able to see anything till I'm done. So I apologize in advance if I don't answer your question right away. That's why. And here we go. So, <clears throat> all facts, all evidence, and all of history will always, always be interpreted according to your most deeply held faith commitments, your presuppositions about the fundamental nature of reality. 
that is the central claim of what we've been looking at so far within apologetics and within how you know why why are we looking at things presuppositionally why what's that word mean all that stuff if you're lost already go back and listen to some of the uh, earlier things of this i can't don't have time to, to recap everything or ask me questions at the end um i have to go a little bit quickly here to cover everything but that is the the central claim that uh that 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 statement is true informs the way that we approach our critique and our understanding of the why people believe what they believe why they don't take a litany of philosophical arguments well or empirical evidence well when when presented in favor of the christian worldview uh, is because they are interpreting all evidence and all of history according to their most deeply held faith commitments and they have them because everyone has an ultimate authority that is self-justifying or self-authenticating. They have a rock bottom that they stand on. Jesus makes it clear that there's only one rock and everything else is sinking sand. You build your house on the sand, it will get destroyed in the storm. You build it on the rock, it will stand firm. And that rock is, of course, his word. So, uh, one of the fundamental presuppositions that many people carry in their interpretation of the evidence is what I am calling cultural Hegelianism or Hegelianism. And it comes from a philosopher named Hegel. But before we look at Hegel, we need to go back in history further and look at his predecessors, Immanuel Kant and Rene Descartes. Now, you may have possibly heard those names before if you've taken any kind of history class you should have heard of Kant and Descartes at some point. If you haven't, then your history teacher did you a disservice. Uh, if you've taken any kind of intro to philosophy course, you've definitely heard of Kant and Descartes. You may have even read excerpts from some of their writings. A uh, popular phrase, I think, therefore I am. There's no therefore there. It's really just I think I am, comma. Um, but that comes from Descartes. So that's who we're dealing with first. So. A common phrase in philosophical circles, kind of a joke phrase, is that all philosophy is a footnote to Plato. And this is basically true if you're considering secular philosophy, not religiously oriented philosophy proper, or rather Christian philosophy proper, though there are religious philosophers within Plato's stream of thought, and Plato himself is, of course, deeply religious at some level. Uh, but by secular, I simply mean rather pagan. Uh, so not Christian. And all of philosophy after Plato is in many ways a footnote to Plato. They are either dialoguing with him, stealing from him, or interacting with him in some way, responding to him, critiquing him, uh, even if they're not self-aware about it, that's what they're doing. Well, there's a point where that kind of breaks off, and that's really with Descartes. Descartes brings in uh, a radical departure within philosophical thinking from faith as a proper epistemological category. What, what does that mean? Well, up until Descartes, uh, many people saw the world kind of split into two categories. You had things that could be known through faith and things that could be known through reason. And this is largely due to Aquinas, uh, Thomas Aquinas, a medieval uh, uh, Catholic thinker who is really just stealing it from Aristotle in many ways. So 
again, Plato, because Aristotle is Plato's student, and we go back to Plato. Everything goes back to Plato in some way. Um, if you don't know who Plato is, Greek philosopher from way back. Student of Socrates, maybe you've heard of him. I should mention that because I realize that some people have never heard of any philosophy ever, and I might need to explain names more. Uh, so we go from Plato. Eventually, we get to Aquinas. From Aquinas, there's a bit of a dark period. There's not a whole lot going on. We get to Descartes, and Descartes uh, tries to establish a worldview based on pure reason. He tries to think and conclude from thinking that he is. He tries to come to knowledge of himself in the world purely through rational practice. And many people think that he succeeds. Or they think that he doesn't, but everyone after him has to deal with him. And so after Descartes, now Descartes is really in some ways responding to Plato, but uh, after Descartes, everyone is footnoting Descartes. They are responding to him in yeah. some way, interacting with him in some way. That was very loud. don't know where that came from. Um, anyway. <laughs> uh, and, and so from Descartes, you get to Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant deals with Descartes by writing the critique of pure reason. And he, through a long series of convoluted argumentation, concludes that through pure reason, you actually can't know the what he called the, 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 the noumenal world, the thing in itself. You can't know the world around you objectively. Objective knowledge is impossible. Only the phenomenal world the subjective can be truly known. And this shatters centuries of philosophical thought that was based on the assumption that the objective reality around us could be accessed through our reason. Kant says, no, it can't. And he has reasons for it. I won't go into all of those. He says, no, it actually can't. And uh, I can make a pun there with his name, but I, I will save my wife from cringing because she's probably listening enough to be able to hear it. Um, she loves my puns, by the way. She absolutely does. Um, this, the world cannot be known in itself. You can't have true knowledge of the world. You can only know thing, what, what your subjective experience reports to you, the phenomenal or the, 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 the phenomena that you experience. So Hegel, big, piggybacking off of Kant, says, okay, great. Then I will figure out a system by which to understand the phenomenal. If we can't know the thing in itself, then let's see if our pure reason can at least provide us with a superstructure by which to understand the phenomena that we experience. So he becomes one of the founders of the school of thought called phenomenology. There's your long history. The reason we need to go there is because Christianity has been at war with Plato since Paul set foot into Athens. Okay. <laughs> so 
this is not new. And, and we will be fighting Plato uh, in, until the kingdom uh, comes in its, in its fullness. So th- th- that is why I wanted to take you on that brief, brief, brief jaunt through philosophical history. So Hegel creates a fundamental faith commitment. It is deeply religious in nature. It has a deterministic view of history, the same way the Christian worldview does, where we say, you know, history is on rails. It's going from point A to point B, and it's going to get there, and we know what point B is. Uh, Point A was creation. Point B is consummation. Point A is God making the world. Point B is God recreating the world, new heavens and new earth. Um, So it's a deeply religious eschatological view of history it has an eschaton it has an end point that's what eschatology is a study of the end it refers to people's view on when and how jesus is going to return and kind of bring all this this uh stuff to a close um hegel's understanding of history his philosophy of history is called the dialectic why does this matter? Well, the dialectical interpretation of reality is what people are using now to interpret all of the world around them. This is why it feels so confusing sometimes, or just it's it's like how, how you, you might think to yourself, how can someone think this way when you see people talking about uh, some of the current social issues that we face at the moment, um, uh, things like transgenderism or some of the racial issues that pop up a lot, you, you might wonder to yourself, how can someone see the world this way? Well, they've been born and bred to see the world in Hegelian terms, in a dialectical interpretation of history. So what is that dialectical interpretation of history? Well, it goes like this. Hegel, in his enterprise to use reason to interpret the phenomenal, created a structure to do it in. It has three basic steps. Thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So what do those words mean? Well, the thesis is choose something in your phenomenal experience. Uh, and it has to be a positive assertion of some kind. So let's say I exist. We'll, we'll, we'll choose that. The, the, the claim I am, I, that I exist. There's an I that experiences the world. Uh, there's a being behind the I, the, behind the subject, and that being is me. So that's my thesis. That's, that's my initial starting point. The antithesis is whatever is the contradictory claim to the thesis. That's why it's called the antithesis. So the antithesis of I exist is I do not exist. What Hegel did from there is to say, well, actually, if you try to define the antithesis clearly, you'll see that it cannot be defined clearly 
in certain terms. The antithesis is difficult to narrow down. It's difficult to pin down. Defining what something is not is nearly impossible because the second you do with something as fundamental as existence, when you define non-existence, you suddenly find it existing. If you try to define nothing in a clear certain terms, suddenly it exists either in the real world in some weird way built the way that you word it or within the realm of ideas. And, and, and so uh, you generate a problem with, with this contradiction you have. You have the thesis, the antithesis, they contradict each other. Only one of them can be true. I either exist or I don't exist. And Hegel said, well, actually neither of them are true because I can't even clearly define either of them. And if I can't clearly define it, then my reason cannot grasp it, which means that it must not be true because anything that my reason cannot grasp doesn't exist even in the phenomenal terminology that Kant would have accepted. If you're, if you're lost, good. Hegel is difficult to understand. I will give some more concrete examples of this moving forward. Don't worry. We'll, we'll get more concrete with it, but I, I, I want to give you as thorough of an explanation as I can. So the thesis and the antithesis will eventually collapse each other out. Uh, they'll, they'll destroy each other and give rise to a new understanding called the synthesis, which will become a new thesis that will give rise to a new antithesis that will give rise to a new synthesis, and so on and so forth. And this is the progression of history in Hegel's understanding, that all of, of thought, all of history, all of philosophy, all of religion works within thesis, antithesis, synthesis categories of some kind. Now, his thought experiment with being and non-being leads him to say some pretty ridiculous things about leads to what uh, one author I was reading this week calls dialectical idealistic pantheism. That was Hegel's worldview in a nutshell. Uh, dialectical is his interpretive framework. Ide it's idealistic because he believed that only ideas are real. Um, or rather, I ideas are... Yeah, all of reality consists of, of just ideas. There's no material world, really. The material world is, is generated through uh, the phenomenal ideas of of the subjects within it. Um, and it's pantheistic because his view of God was that it is uh, God is the world coming to be self-aware of itself <laughs> through the dialectic process of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And one day it will synthesize into an absolute. There will be a singularity point. There will be a final thesis, a final antithesis, and then the final synthesis, and, and, and that will be the actual truth, and the God who is everything will finally become fully self-aware of himself, and suddenly Hegel is a Hindu. Yeah, he, he, he went there through his pure reason, apparently, and thus we prove once again that the Bible is correct, that the wisdom of man is foolishness, <laughs> and the... Uh, and they consider the wisdom of God foolish indeed. Um, 
So that's Hegel in the tiniest microcosmic nutshell that I can pack him into. Uh, reading him as a primary source is not enjoyable or easy. So if you plan to do so, I encourage, you know, any kind of venture into the primary sources that I speak about, uh, feel free, but have fun. Buckle up. Now, Hegel takes this dialectical interpretation of reality and applies it to history. And now he styles himself as a prophet who claims to know how all of reality, all of the timeline of history, both began and will end. It arose out of a thesis, antithesis, synthesis process. He, he's, he's evolutionary in his thinking, and, and so he does apply that to this uh, idea as well. Um, Marx especially does later that, um, that that is what Darwinian evolution is actually using the Hegelian dialectic as an assumption about how the world must work. So Darwin comes after Hegel. Um, there were evolutionary thinkers before Darwin. And so, you know, really Hegel provides the philosophical groundwork for Darwin to then interpret the evidence he sees through. That's why Hegel is so important for us to think about right now. So Karl Marx takes Hegel's thought and applies it to economics. And so you get the uh, class warfare because there is a thesis and antithesis among the social classes. And in order to give rise to a synthesis, they have to come into conflict. That's the only way to bring about a synthesis is through the thesis and, and the antithesis fleshing themselves out to the fullest in what they are, and then coming into conflict with each other. Because this is how Hegel understood history. An example that he gave in his philosophy of history is the master and the slave. The master depends upon the slave for his own existence, yet his own, uh, the things that having slaves frees him to do, which is read, write, create art, etc., to think about things in the abstract, eventually leads to him eradicating the slavery that he depended on in order to do those things. So the thesis and antithesis gives rise to a new synthesis and a new society um, because they, they can't coexist with each other. They will always give rise to a synthesis. They will come into conflict in some way because they are contradictory ideas or realities. Marx applies this to economics. But calling what we're looking at today cultural Marxism is a misnomer, I think. And that's a bit of a controversial thing to say, probably. But it's because I don't think these people are really getting it from Marx. I think they're getting it from Hegel. Marx took it and applied it to a very narrow uh, topic, but it is being applied today to much more than economic class struggles. It's being applied to gender. It's being applied to race being applied to language. So that's why it matters today. This is the way many people view the world. But because it is a deeply religious faith commitment, some of the things that come along with that have also entered into people's thinking, namely that we are always on the brink of the absolute, of the final synthesis. What do I mean? Well, every generation of Christians since 
the first. Some of among them have thought that their generation is the one in which Jesus will return. Every single one, without exception. And then they weren't right because they all died and Jesus did not return. So, in the same way, every Hegelian, every dialectic thinker thinks that their generation is the one that will bring about the, the final synthesis. And they think that the, the current synthesis that they are seeing being created is the ultimate one. The reason they have to think that way is because in Hegelianism, there is no winner to history until the final synthesis occurs. There is no right side of history because both, both the thesis and the antithesis are not correct. And every synthesis becomes a new thesis. So it is a hopeless view of history because no matter which side of the equation that you're on, the synthesis that arises out of you becomes a new thesis, which is not correct and will soon generate its own antithesis. And then those two things will come into conflict again. It is a history of constant conflict that through conflict lead, uh, finally will eventually lead to a utopia of the absolute, whatever you apply it to. If you apply it to nature, you end up with the absolute self-consciousness of the universe. If you apply it to history, you end up with a utopian society. If you apply it to economics, like Marx says, you end up with the, the, the final revolution that leads to the communist, uh, you know, uh, equal distribution of wealth utopia. But every single one of them believes that they are bringing about the final synthesis. Also, for any of you uh, nerds out there, my wife informed me as she has played and replayed the Mass Effect series many times that the plot of Mass Effect 3 and its ending, one of its endings, is Hegelian historical dialectic playing itself out. So... Uh, if that helps you understand it better, if you've played those games, that might help you understand because it helped her understand when I was explaining it to her yesterday. So uh, I'll drop that out there too. So let me give you some examples from our contemporary society and then give a Christian response to all of this because it is, uh, imagine for a moment with me thinking in this fashion that in order to bring about the next step of the human race, the, the, the synthesis, you need to bring whatever is contradictory to you, you need to destroy it. That's the only way the synthesis rises is if the antithesis and the thesis go to war and one destroys the other, or well, really they destroy each other, but when you're in one of them, you don't think that way. It's whatever is contradictory to my position has to go. It has to be destroyed. Um, so if you're thinking in those categories, then you will be incredibly militantly violent toward everything that is contradictory to your worldview and perspective. Because you're trying to bring about the good. You're trying in your mind, you're trying to bring about the next step of progress. So we have three examples that I've 
um, jotted down here. Transgenderism is a great example of a synthesis in progress. So the thesis is the patriarchy, the antithesis is feminism, and the synthesis is transgenderism. This is why the feminists are finding that transgender is a trans transgender can't say the word tonight the transgender movement is actually destroying much of the progress that the feminists thought that they had achieved or progress so-called that they thought they had achieved is actually being destroyed and dismantled by the transgender movement because if you labor your entire life to bring you know quote unquote equality women in these different spheres of society and then another group comes along and says, oh, but by the way, uh, all of those men that you were trying to become equal with can now just put on a dress and say they're a woman and they have now become a woman. Uh, you now have all of that. It's gone. It's gone. Completely erased. So you, you see, it's very interesting because... Again, the synthesis will always erase both the thesis and the antithesis within the Hegelian dialectic. And so that's what you see there. Uh, we have deconstructionism, which is a, a view of language and thought that attempts to deconstruct. It, it, its goal is, as the name implies, to deconstruct any sure-headed ideas that exist, basically. Deconstruct language, deconstruct theories of language, deconstruct epistemology, deconstruct metaphysics, deconstruct everything around you. What happens when deconstructionism turns on itself? Because deconstructionism itself is a worldview and system. It has a clear, defined uh, kind of goal and worldview around it so if you use it on itself it then deconstructs itself um and, and so the synthesis always destroys uh what came before it if you're thinking about it in those terms and that's that's what that's exactly what's happening another example is what's called critical race theory we don't have time tonight to go into all the details of this but your thesis for the critical race theorists is whiteness your antithesis is blackness. And eventually, now, uh, the critical race series at the moment sides with blackness. But eventually, those things are intended to destroy each other. And a synthesis will have to rise. Whatever that is, you know, I, I don't know what, what they intend in that regard. But but it is based in the, the basic idea that in order to bring about progress you have to bring into conflict the contradictory ideas they have to fight each other they can't just exist in the same sphere they can't coexist in society they can't coexist in the family they can't coexist in government they have to fight and only one gets to live and the version of it that lives will not look like the version of it that was fighting it will be the synthesis whatever that is so when Marx applies it to economics, the working class that is oppressed, that rises up against its oppressor, once the oppressor is defeated, guess what it isn't anymore? The oppressed class. It has become something else. And this idea of becoming was central to Hegel's thought. There is no being, there is no non-being, there is only becoming. So, there you have it. Um, 
if all of that is confusing or unhelpful, I apologize. But I wanted to go through this because this is the ideology that is driving so much of the worldviews within our culture at the moment, if you're in Western culture at all. Um, and it is not a reasoned out position. It is not something that people, it is a faith commitment, it is a presupposition that many people don't are not self-aware enough about to even realize that that's the way they're seeing the world in the thesis antithesis terms and that the conflict is a necessary thing the revolution must happen in order to bring about the utopia that is the basic story that the, that the dialectic tells and it's a story of history that for them is deterministic that the conflict not only must happen, but will always happen, and that a new synthesis will rise in its wake until the absolute is achieved, whatever the absolute happens to be. For Marx, it's the final revolution. For Hegel, it's the absolute self-consciousness of the universe. And for others, who knows uh, what that might be, but whatever it is that they're looking toward, the end, the eschaton that they have in mind, um, that is the goal and the means to get there. There is no morality in this system. It is a purely consequentialist perspective um, that means justify the ends, no matter what. And so critiquing the morals of it, I think, is not overly helpful all the time because obviously it's morally bankrupt. I think a Christian response needs to tell a better story of life, the universe, and everything because that's what they're doing. They're not just thinking about sexuality or thinking about race. They're thinking about a whole world and life view that I think is is one of the ways that many of the Christians critiquing all of this stuff have gone not wrong necessarily, but not far enough. That pointing out that the critical race theorists are very racist uh, doesn't do much against their case because they don't care if they're being racist because morality is not a category that they're even thinking about. Pointing out that transgenderism is is against God's word and, and that there's only man and woman. Like, again, that's important and needs to be said and done, but it doesn't go far enough because it, the way that people are thinking about it is not just in an isolated moral category. It's not, is it right or wrong for people to be transgender? That's not what they're thinking about. It's their entire self-narrative of their life hinges upon the question of who am I? And that is a question that Christians have a glorious answer to. So the Christian response, I think, needs to take us through a brief jaunt in the scriptures. Now, unfortunately, I do not have time to go through all of the texts that I have studied for tonight, which I knew would happen because I have skipped a lot of things already to get 
through this in a timely fashion. Um, but I want to read some Bible texts. And, and honestly, if you go back and listen to the Bible speed run that I did last year, that will be a lot of what I'm going to say right now. But I still want to say what I'm going to say now and apply it directly to, to what we're thinking about. Because it's important for us as Christians to not isolate our Christianity to a pocket, to a corner of our lives. The, the Christian truth is total truth. It is life-encompassing. Or as one of my favorite uh, theologians, pastors, says, uh, all of Christ for all of life. As we, as we talked about at the beginning of this uh, apologetics course, uh, Jesus makes an authoritative claim over every area of your life. Every area of your life. And that means that there is a meaningful Christian way to think about and live in every minute of your day, in every area of your life. These people are thinking about their worldviews in the same way because they can't help but do it. Now, as Christians, we have a thesis and we see antithesis. God has established a thesis, a truth, a positive truth claim. He's established many of them, in fact. When he created the world, he created a, a specific world, a world that he designed in a specific way, to function in a specific way, and created us in his image to live in his world in a specific manner. So we look at Genesis. The very beginning. The glorious words of Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created. We're going to skip ahead to the fall. Because this is where the antithesis is introduced. Now, the difference between the Christian and the Hegelian is that there is no synthesis. The thesis is correct. For Hegel, the thesis is not fully correct. Because antithesis exists, the thesis cannot be fully accurate. For the Christian, that's not how things go. The antithesis, in fact, demonstrates once again the truth of the thesis, namely that God created the world and everything in it for his own purposes and glory, and he created humanity, set them in the garden, told them how they ought to live with one simple command, and we generated antithesis antithesis into the universe <laughs> we're the ones who brought this whole thing in with the fall and so god establishing more thesis here responds in genesis chapter 3 with the curse but specifically he gives in the curse to the woman a promise genesis chapter 3 verse 15 i will put enmity between you and the woman, sorry, not, not in the curse of the woman, it's in the curse on the serpent. Correct myself. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so, the rest of the story of history is all about the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, undoing the curse brought about in the fall. That is the story of Christianity, and it is 
glorious and astounding to read, to look at, to watch as many, many offspring of the woman rise up and deal some measure of damage to the curse and to the serpent, but cannot crush the head. And so God throughout history promises a better offspring of the woman who will do so. Psalm chapter 2, that this offspring will come uh, from himself, will be his very own unique son. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? So at this point in the story, there are nations. They are raging. Raging against whom? Against God. The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who is that? The chosen son. The son of the woman. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is an important point that I want to point out. If you were sitting there lost and confused when I was explaining Hegel to you, you were right to be so. While regarded as the father of an entire school of philosophical thought, he's a crazy person who thinks that the entire world is a self-consciousness coming to know itself. And yet we teach him in our universities in higher academia. And the only reason I have to deal with him is because that is the reality that we live in. Otherwise, we should laugh at him, point and laugh, just as the Lord does in this text. I don't mean in a sinful, laughing mockery of that sort, but like if someone looked you dead in the eye and said, I truly believe that the entire universe is just a cell, a great collective self-conscious becoming more aware of itself over time through this complicated dialectical process. That person is not sane. They're not in their right mind. That's not the way the world is at all. And it doesn't take much examination to figure that out. Uh, but, but these are the worldviews that dominate the thinking of our culture which is why we have to understand and deal with them. However, uh, don't, my point is not to laugh openly at such a person. We need to deal with them with some measure of sympathy and kindness, of course, and respect. But we don't need to respect the worldview. We don't need to respect the insanity. Uh, it is insane for the nations to count, take counsel together against the creator. That is an insane thing to do. And we can call it what it is. As a, that is a losing battle every time. You know, it, it's, it's like uh, if you're a, you know, 14-year-old gamer nerd and you try to go out and toe-to-toe -to -toe an MMA fighter, that is a losing battle 100% of the time and you are insane to try. That's exactly what the kings of the earth are doing when they set themselves together to go against the creator who holds uh, them in his very hands and sustains them with his power. So God rightly laughs. It's absurd for them to do such a thing. And he holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. 
And so God does what a good presuppositionalist does. They they set themselves up in an absurd position, and he counters with the truth. The truth is there is a king on Zion, and that king rules over the nations. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This text is quoted in reference to Jesus in the New Testament. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest you be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There are two ways that God conquers his enemies. They either kiss the sun and take refuge in him, or they go against him and try to take him on. You either get behind the the, the biggest guy in the room, and I'm on his side, uh, or he's going to take you out. Because the room belongs to him. This is his domain. This is his world, and he made it. So in Psalm 110, a similar theme. Uh, I don't have time. I'm, I'm already running way over time. Um, a similar theme. Uh, the text in question uh, is quoted in the book of Hebrews again in reference to Jesus. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Uh, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the beginning, the Lord says, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God is making his enemies a footstool for himself. This story that we can tell about the world, that though there is a fall, that it seems like there is an antithesis that is counteracting the creation that God made. God makes a promise and is undoing the curse undoing the fall and all the effects of it. And he's conquering all those who would set themselves against him because what is true of kings is true of their people. So if your king is Jesus, what is true of him, that he wins in the end, that he conquers, that he rules and reigns, then you win too. There is a right side of history in the Christian worldview because history is set in stone by God. And we get glimpses of the future of that history that God has written in his word, in these texts of the Psalms, in texts like Matthew 28, the Great Commission that many people are familiar with in terms of evangelism. Jesus says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And then he says, go conquer the nations. By doing what? By baptizing them. So the way that Jesus conquers the nations, the conquering the nation's language from the Psalms, he tells his servants how to do it. How, this is how I'm going to conquer the nations. Baptize them and teach them to obey everything I commanded you. And so that's what he's doing right now. Every single Christian convert is, is Jesus conquering his enemies by baptizing them, by uniting them to his death and to his life by saving them from their sins and from his wrath. This is a better story we have because it has an ending that is glorious. In Revelation chapter 20 and 21, God creates a new heavens and a new earth. And so we see the end is good. He conquers his enemies.
the antithesis is wiped out. And all that remains is God's good claim that this is his world. And he has made it and called it good. And it will be that forevermore. Okay. I got to go. All right. Uh, well, I don't have to go, but I have to stop. <laughs> I'm going too fast. I apologize. Uh, let me pray. And 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 I, I should have split this up into two, and I didn't. Um, but there it is. So. All right. Lord. I pray that you would. Conquer all of the rebellion left in our hearts that though you have saved us, if you have um, saved those who are listening to me right now, uh, there is residual rebellion left, and you are weeding it out day by day, rooting out the remnants of our prior sin and evil that dwells within us. Conquer that which remains to be conquered. Sift those things out from us and help us to, to join in this, in this glorious conquest of the universe that you are accomplishing, that you have secured by your death and resurrection, and that you're accomplishing in time through the baptizing of the nations, through the salvation of sinners through the turning of enemies into friends, by your grace and your mercy. Help us to honor you, to love you, and to know fully that grace by which we stand. Amen. Amen. Some good stuff, Josh. Um, now, you're going to move into uh, question time. Uh, we won't have a ton of time for questions, but I, th I think we still got a bit of time. If you want to either, uh, you know, type your question in Bible study chat, or if you want to use your microphone, you can do that as well. But now is time to do it. If you typed a question during the study, uh, I think some of you did. Just go ahead and retype it. So for Josh, because there's a good bit of chat to scroll up through, he wasn't really looking at that during while talking. But yeah, now's the time to to do all that. Uh, yep, yeah, I'm scrolling. Let me see. All right. I know where I am because of the weird Obama picture. Uh, <laughs> that was when I started talking. Was That was the last thing there. Uh, let me see. Uh, Larry boy, isn't Hegel kind of contradictory? Couldn't his own philosophy be negated and go into further dialectical development to form a new kind of philosophy? Yes. And Hegel realized this and claimed that he was the final synthesis of all philosophy. <laughs> so he just went all the way and just said it and, and said, yep, I am the end of philosophy. No one who comes after me will improve upon my philosophy. I have ended philosophy here. Um, but you are right that that is a giant gaping hole in his perspective that it would fall to its own 
uh, formulation at some point. And uh, in many ways it has, uh, as we've seen, where it has developed into a five-headed monster that has invaded many of the uh, worldviews around us. But uh, I think that was the only question I saw down there. Uh, yes, Psalm 110 does make Hebrews make a lot more sense. Uh, Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, I would encourage using those um, in Hebrews. Uh, is it? Uh, thank you, Larry. So is it kind of like evolutionary naturalism in the sense that you just evolved to see your truth? Uh, yes. In a sense. So that critique of evolutionary naturalism where it's like, okay, um, or what was, uh, let me ask, uh, Graceful Fire, is that, uh, was that a question, or is that a like question about Kant, or was that about Hegel? Because I don't know when that was that I was talking. Um, That was like, when you're talking about, uh, what was it, it was a while ago, um, yeah, I know. <laughs> Most of my questions are kind of irrelevant now, but um, it was like when you're talking about even if it's like like kind of one fights the other and then the one that wins comes out on top and that's the reality no matter if it's false or not. I could have butchered that definition. Yeah, kind of so, like that. Yeah, so, so it's interesting. The way Hegel's thought about it was that the synthesis was the truth it was the reconciliation of the of the contradiction that existed however the synthesis became a new thesis so it becomes untrue so it was very uh <laughs> well it's silly it's, it's just silly i have no other way to describe it um i really do laugh at it when, when i when i read hegel himself reading him firsthand is a trip and he's so confused it seems like when he's trying to explain all of this and you just get the sense that i i don't think i don't know if he fully understood what he was saying um because there are there are big gaping holes you can just drive a truck through uh in a lot of this like the one right there where it's like, yeah, so the thesis and antithesis destroy each other and a synthesis arises and becomes a new thesis, which means that the synthesis wasn't true. But again, this they don't care about objective truth because they think objective truth cannot be known. So it's true subjectively in the phenomenal experience of the people who are living during that synthesis. And it will become untrue whenever people move on to the next one basically which is goofy and uh doesn't bode well for Hegel's own perspective obviously uh, okay other questions i don't see any more in chat so wouldn't be surprising if you didn't have any because 
if anyone even understood what I was going on about there, I I would be happy if you understood any of it. The, the main point I, I wanted to get across was the final one. So hopefully that was understood. Uh, yeah. Hit me. Question. Um. So when you're talking about like, this kind of came relevant, but I just want to like kind of clarify a little bit. Um, or clarity. But like, when you were talking about like, back like uh, when it was about um, how like critical race theory and how like was I'm trying to remember the words you used it was like um, could you go over what you were saying back when you were about critical race theory sure yeah Um, so, so critical race theory and for those who don't know, critical theory is arises out of a, a Marxist. It does arise out of a, a Marxist perspective where he talked about um, uh, critical perspectives. And all that means is that it's criticizing the thing um, or is, is looking at it critically in a way that will will deconstruct whatever it's looking at. That's kind of the idea. So critical race theory um, looks at things in a Marxist lens, in a Hegelian lens in view of, of an, there is some kind of thesis and antithesis. There is an oppressor and an and, and oppressed. There is a positive claim and there is the negation of it. The positive claim, uh, and by positive I don't mean good, I mean just it's saying this is what's true about the world. In critical race theory, that is whiteness. So for the critical race theorists, whiteness isn't just having white skin. It is all that goes along with being a white person, having white privileges, living off of uh, as an oppressor. And all of the rights and privileges and honors that you might accrue through oppressing another group of people, it is just defined by your race. if if you are white, then you participate in whiteness automatically, and you are an oppressor um, by virtue of your skin color. There are other versions of critical theory that look at things like sex and gender, um, which are not different, by the way. Um, but it'll look at things like that. Uh, it'll look at economic things like in a true Marxist fashion, and. The, the proletariat and the bourgeois, the the capitalist and the uh, worker. Um, so critical theory looks at all of those things and says that the obligation of the oppressor uh, is to relent of his oppression, but he has to become aware of it because oppression happens by virtue of simply existing in the oppressor class you're born into it so if you're born a white person in the west you're automatically part of the oppressor class so you have to become awakened or woke uh to your oppressor status then you must confess it and then you must join the antithesis at some point you have to become as i saw recently in a chart given out uh to parents from a new york city public school uh, you have to become a white traitor. You have to betray your whiteness and join the side of 
blackness. And blackness is not simply black people, but every other kind of skin color that isn't white participates in blackness as the oppressed class, as the oppressed group. So in Hegelian terms, the thesis is whiteness, the antithesis is blackness, and blackness as the antithesis, as the negation of whiteness, has an obligation to further the, further the dialectic tree or to bring about the absolute to destroy whiteness <laughs> because it is the contradiction of it. It opposes it in every way, shape, or form at every level of life. Um, it is the, the truest negation of it that could be. Um, now that poses all kinds of interesting questions for the critical race theorists because they have now relegated being black to being a negation, and that's not great for black people, but, you know, uh, most critical race theorists are white, so <laughs> there you have it. Um, at least the ones that perpetuated it at the beginning through academia. They, they're, they were, they were white people. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but that might help you me have a follow-up question. <laughs> yeah, you, you kind of helped me think through what my question was actually going to be. Um, so my question was like, so say like, you know, back in the day, like say white people had like black slaves and now we're trying, and now we're starting to see the elimination of whiteness in our society or the attempt. Um, and then like say in other, uh, societies see like, say like, an like a mark. Uh Oh, you cut out buddy. He's gone into the void. Yeah. Hello? Hello? You're back. You're back. Yeah, you, you cut uh, out. Yeah, I got I got yeah. called by a DM. Um, oh. But it was like, where did you guys hear me end off at? Uh, you began to say, uh, we're, we're seeing today white, the attempt to eliminate whiteness, and then you started to say something about another kind of culture, and then that. Oh, okay. All right. Um, but like sorry, kind of <laughs> that kind of made me confused. Uh now I I kinda got my old words all jumbled up. Um but like basically you would see the something synthesized that is different from what it was before. Like that's what the guy I forget the guy's name who we were studying today, um, but that's what his ideology was, right? Um, right. But like, wouldn't 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 that be true in a sense? Like, not on the like in every single aspect of life, but in like, um, society when you see, like, you see white people oppressing black people in the past, and now you you're trying you're starting to see the opposite of that um by society because it's changing and it's synthesizing like is that not true in some aspects of life or am i just like completely off the rails <laughs> so so the hegelian historian has to engage in revisionist history all of the time they have to either focus on one pocket of the world and not consider the entirety of the human race for example where black people were oppressing black people during the slave trade years because that was happening in different parts of the world. Or the fact that John Newton, one of the most uh, prominent enders 
of slavery in England was a slave. He's a white guy. And he was a slave within the Atlantic slave trade. <laughs> he became he actually got enslaved uh, in the middle of it. He was a slave he was a slaver who got enslaved. Um and then got his freedom, became a pastor because he became a Christian, and then helped end slavery in England because he knew both sides of it. <laughs> um, the Hegelian has to engage in revisionist history because history doesn't play out the way that Hegel says it does. The thesis and antithesis, one, um, the choice of what is the thesis is completely arbitrary. It's completely arbitrary to whatever you want to choose as your target to overthrow. You make that the thesis, then you set yourself up as the negation that will overthrow it and bring about the synthesis. That, that, that is exactly uh, what, what they're, they're, they're going to... Uh, sorry, let me back that. I don't know what I was, where I was going with that. <laughs> the beginning of that sentence. Um, so so they, they have to revise history, which is exactly what we see happening. Um, the destruction of any kind of monuments, destruction, the, the demonization of anyone in the past who belongs to the oppressor class. They had to all be completely evil all of the time because they are the part of the oppressor group, which means they have to be this way in order for us to justify our uh, historical perspective. Um, so when you say you, we kind of see the like, is, is there not some truth to it? There is something to say that that Hegel is sometimes correct in terms of saying sometimes when you see two things that are contradictory, the truth is somewhere in the middle. That's about the only point out of his worldview that you could say, yeah, that's sometimes correct. But taking that perspective and applying it to all of history and saying history always is doing this thing. It is a deterministic force of reality that there's always oppressor oppressed and the oppressor will always overthrow or the oppressed will always overthrow its oppressor and a new structure will form out of it that will then produce a new oppressor oppressed class. Um, that's not the case. It's not true. Um, History is way more complicated than that. It's way more complicated. And Hegel simplifies it so much and flattens out all of the potential beauty of it, all of the nuance. Um, history belongs to God, and he's telling a story of conquering his enemies by his grace and mercy or by his wrath and judgment. And that is a far better story, and it is. Uh, not one that is in an endless cycle. Notice that it's cyclical for Hegel. It's cyclical le spiraling into an absolute. For the Christian, it's an upward slope. Um, it may have its dark days, but it's an upward slope leading to the eschaton, where Jesus will put his finally, final enemy, death, uh, he'll, he'll put that one under the footstool that he's been building, and he'll wrap this whole show up. So we have a very different historical view as Christians than they do. And while you can 
find some truth in the fact that there there's real oppression in the world and there are real oppressors but they're not universally classifiable not every white person in the south during the civil war and chattel slavery era were oppressors of black people they weren't they just weren't not every uh yeah so this is this will be a crazy one are you ready not every Nazi soldier was entirely fully aware or complicit in what was going on in Nazi Germany. Not every Nazi citizen was, or a German citizen. They weren't. There's, there's no way they were. People, one, are too stupid and not self-aware enough for that. <laughs> and two, uh, that's, it, it's, it's always more complicated than that. It's always more complicated. Um, there are people who just aren't aware. There are people who fight back, but in different ways. There are people who just keep going about their lives and close their eyes and pretend like nothing is happening. But uh, you can't throw everyone into a basket and say everyone who lived at this time was exactly part of this thing and are complicit in the oppression of this entire other people group who were always the oppressed. You can't it, it's you cannot flatten things out that way. Uh, if you do that, you are engaging in revisionist history, you are ignoring actual facts about life and the world and everything in it, um, and, and that's that. Okay, so it's like just painting a really broad brush, and it's like ignoring a lot of different other perspectives, it's just seeing something through a very narrow lens. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, they flatten everything out into it is the dialectic. It, it's always about the dialectic. There is an oppressed and there is an oppressor and you're either part of one or the other. And that is the end of the story. Now, for the Christian, there are two sides of history. You're either an enemy of God or a friend of God. <laughs> so in, in some ways, Christianity has an equally flat view of things. But the details are always far richer and diverse because what Hegel, we're going to get a little bit into the deeper end of the water here, okay, for just a second, but I'm, I'm going to roll, so we'll, let's, go, let's go there. Um, Hegel, the reason that he came up with all of this crazy stuff is he could not reconcile two ideas, unity and, and diversity. This has been an irreconcilable problem for philosophers since Plato. Plato tried to reconcile it with the realm of ideas of the forms, and he couldn't do it. Aristotle critiqued him for it. Um, that the forms were not sufficiently diverse or unified to actually establish things. Um, Christianity reconciles the one and the many. This is what uh, Cornelius Van Til, the great theologian, pastor, philosopher combo, that I have benefited the most from and who has most heavily influenced my own thinking out of anyone that I've read, I think. Um, his dissertation was responding to Hegel and Hegelian idealism. And uh, he basically said, oh, the history of, of pagan philosophy is that they either completely, uh, I, I, the world is completely monistic 
there's one thing and only one thing, or it is completely diverse. There are many things and only many things. There are many gods, there are many people, there are many planets, there are many worlds, there are many universes, or everything is one thing. Because they can't reconcile the problem of unity and diversity of the one and the many. Hegel attempted to do so, but couldn't, by saying the one is the many, that the absolute is becoming the absolute, but right now it is many. Right now it is the collective self-conscious that will eventually become self-aware enough to realize that it's been one the entire time. Well, that's just playing word games to try to get around the problem. Pantil said the Trinity as prime reality allows us to have a category of the one and the many because the one is not the many and the many is not the one yet the one and the many are. And yes, that's where that sentence ends. <laughs> um, God is three. The one is three. The one God is three persons. And that this reconciles the problem of unity and diversity in the entirety of the universe. Because the rest of creation comes from a uh, self-existent one and many. Which means that the universe can be one and many because it reflects God's triune nature. So there, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> I don't know. That's not really an answer to a specific question, but you kind of brought it up in a roundabout way. So there you go. Uh, history is not as flat as I was trying to make it, even in my description, because though it is, though it is true that there are either friends of God's friends of God or enemies of God. They're either the saved and the lost. There are the redeemed and there are the damned. That is true. And yet the redeemed are at one point under the wrath of God and not redeemed yet. So the, the, the unity of the elect are at points in time across history, not saved and under the wrath of God. And so it's like, how does all that? What it's unity and diversity coexisting across time, space, and history because our God is one in many. Um, and so we should expect reality to reflect his nature at various levels. So uh that was free. <laughs> all right. It's, um, we're getting a bit past time. I have to go ahead and call it. If you're okay with that, Josh, or if anyone has any I'm, quick questions. If anyone wants to ask any other questions, I can answer them maybe in text tomorrow or something, um, uh, like in, in the chat itself. But I am, I've worn myself out. <laughs> Next week, we're looking at Freud and his children, the sexual revolution. So be there for that great well we can officially be done 